This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. And hi, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of Knowledge at Warden as we come to you from the Forbes Small Giants Conference in New York City. Uh, this is the second year at the, this event for us and the third year that Forbes has been hosting it. And it really stands apart in that these awards recognize small businesses who are telling unique stories. But these are also companies that, in all cases, tend to believe that greatness in many cases, is more important than growth, that success of the individuals working there is a higher priority than the bottom line success. Now, there are some qualifications for being selected to this group of 25 businesses being honored here today. The company must be privately owned, and it must be at least 10 years old, but they are also picked for their work in the community, their commitment to the people that work for them, and for excellence in their industry. And What is best in introducing these businesses to you is the stories that they will tell of their successes and of those who work for them. This year's group includes a Michigan company that's making beanbag chairs, but doing it by hiring former prison inmates. A Missouri company that helped its town turn into a tourist destination through quilting as well as the ones we're going to introduce you here today. By the way, you can see the entire list of this year's winners online at Forbes.com and search Small Giants. So let's introduce you to some of this year's Forbes Small Giants. And we start out with the gentleman that helped organize this event, Lauren Feldman, who you also hear is host of Mind Your Business here on Sirius XM 132. Lauren, great to talk to you. Great to be here, Dan. Thank you. Thank you. So I guess let's start with the background about how Small Giants came together a few years ago. Sure. Well, it really started with a guy named Bo Burlingham. He was a colleague of mine about 15 years ago. We worked together at Inc. Magazine a little more than 10 years ago. He wrote a book called Small Giants. Uh, He had found a number of companies that he profiled that were, as you said before, they were more focused on being great than on being big. And he wondered how many there were out there. So he got a book contract and went looking for them and wrote a book of about 15. And uh, what he discovered was he, he put 15 in the book, but there were a lot more than that of these companies. And the interesting thing was they all thought they were kind of alone. They all thought they were the only ones running their business with this mindset. And they were kind of thrilled to find out that there were a lot of other people who thought the same way. And, and I th- that, that was really the beginning notion. And I think that's one of the, the, the amazing things about this event is the stories that you hear of how some of these companies have reached this level of success with the variety of factors that kind of play in. That, that's absolutely right. They, you know, they come from all different industries. They have all different ideas and approaches. Um, what they share in common is, you know, they all want to learn. They're eager to learn from each other. When we get them together in one room, it sometimes feels like a kind of like a family reunion. <laughs> We're joined by Lauren Feldman, who is uh, the uh, the gentleman, one of the gentlemen who helped organize this event. You also hear him here on Sirius XM 132 Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern time as host of Mind Your Business. So tell us more about, about this year's group of, of, uh, of award winners. Um, well, you know, We've, we've been doing it for three years, and it's interesting because the first time we did it, uh, nobody, of course, had, had heard of a Forbes small giant. We were introducing the concept, and we had to go out and find companies and beg them to apply. Uh, the third time we did it, they were begging us. We were overwhelmed with applications, and you know, we, we just came up with one cool company after another. One of the ones that I love to, uh, to talk about is an advertising agency in uh, Toronto, and um, it was started by a guy who left a big firm, uh, started a small firm. He had actually read Bo Burlingham's Small Giants book, and that's kind of what inspired him to uh, follow this path. But he, he made a choice that most advertising agencies do not make, which is he decided that he was not going to do the normal dog and pony shows that agencies have to do when they want to win business. Normally, they have to you know, p- prepare a proposal, do a lot of great thinking, deliver it on time. Uh, pitch it to uh, the owner of the account and compete with three or four other agencies. Um, this uh, company, it's known as Zulu Alpha Kilo, 
decided that they were tired of giving away their work. If somebody wanted to hire them, they could hire them. If they wanted them to do work for them, they would do it. They just had to pay them. And it was a, it was a revolutionary stance to take, but they've made it work. And they've grown uh, and thrived and done incredible work that has won all kinds of honors uh, in the advertising industry. We're going to talk in just a couple of minutes uh, with uh, Matt O'Hare, who is the founder of Vital Farms, which is based down in Texas. And and it's an amazing story uh, that is really, to a degree, it's changing farming, talking about pasture raising uh, hens, laying hens, and how that's impacting the egg, uh, the egg community as well. That's absolutely right. And one of the great things uh, about Matt and uh, one of the things we look to do uh, with a story like his is try to make it relevant to as many uh, business owners as possible, even those in other industries. So while you're absolutely right about how he's changing farming, and that's, to many people, that's the main focus of what he's done, we also like to look at other aspects of the way he's run his business, which are really interesting. One aspect of it is that he's managed to convince people, including my wife, to pay $8 for a dozen eggs, which is uh, an interesting marketing accomplishment. Um, but the other thing is the way he financed his business. You know, again, the, most of these businesses are not huge, uh, but his is about $100 million in revenue now, and he's taken it national. And he's, he had to raise capital to do that. And he took private equity, which most of these companies don't do, but he did it in a really creative way in, you know, small slices that have allowed him, allowed him to keep control of the business while still getting the capital he needed to build the business. One of the other companies we're going to talk to you later in the show is uh, Massachusetts Bay Brewing Company, and we'll talk with their CEO, Dan Canary. And, and Massachusetts Bay is a company that actually makes Harpoon Ale, which is a fairly well-known beer. But the story about this company is really its relationship with its employees and, and the fact that they, a few years ago, made all of their employees co-owners in the company. That, that's absolutely right. You know, uh, Harpoon was really one of the leaders of the craft beer movement. They were uh, way ahead of the game um, and, you, you know, have developed a, a, you know, a national following, uh, especially in, um, in the Northeast in New England. Um, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a really amazing company. It was started by three people. At one point, one of the partners wanted to leave, and they were trying to figure out what to do with the business. And they decided to uh, sell it to the employees. Um, it's not 100% owned by the employees yet, but they're headed in that direction. Really an inspiring story. And, and I also wanted to touch on Missouri Star Quilt Company, which, as I mentioned uh, at the top, this is a company that, through quilting, has really made the town of Hamilton, Missouri, a, a tourist destination. You know, they, they call it the Disneyland of quilting. Um, an, another amazing story. This is a family that, that had fallen on hard times. They lived in California. They had um, a, a medical issue in, in the family that was sending them towards bankruptcy. They were on welfare and food stamps. They decided that California was too expensive a place to live. They just, you know, almost randomly picked a town in Missouri to move to. Um, they, they moved to this town. They bought uh, a sewing machine for the uh, matriarch of the family. She just kind of on a whim started doing how-to videos on YouTube. And, you know, within a couple of years, they had a $40 million business. And they took a, a town uh, that's literally a one-stoplight town and turned it into a tourist destination. Really an amazing story. Lauren, uh, again, thank you for inviting us to come up uh, to New York City and be part of this event. It's a fun day for us. Thank you, sir. Always a pleasure to have you there. Thank you, Dan. Well, our first small giant is in the farming sector. His company, Vital Farms, has a network of farms that he works with that raise egg-laying hens in a different manner, pasture-raised, with supply going to companies like Whole Foods and other natural food stores. And the key may be letting chickens graze. That's right. Chickens don't just eat feed or grain. They eat grass as well. Matt O'Hare is the CEO of the Texas-based company and co-founder. His sales pitch to recruiting firms is earn 35% more with as much as 75% fewer hens. It's also partly about the efficiency of running the farm and care for those hens, as well as the relationships with the farmers themselves. Great to have Matt joining us today. Nice meeting you. Thank you for coming in. Great meeting you, Dan. Thank you. How did the idea of pasture raising hens and chickens really come about? 
Well, after World War II, we started – you saw a concentration of, of eggs coming from farms that were no longer farms but uh, what they called battery uh, cage operations where they started putting one bird in a cage, then they put two or three birds in a cage, and it cu- cut their overhead and it enabled them to be a cheaper form of producing eggs. But what we did miss is the animal welfare component. These birds were end up being in a tortured environment um, where they spent their entire life in a cage not able to stand up or turn around or flap their wings uh, for their entire life, just eat and poop and lay eggs. Yeah. And, and it, wasn't, it was a terrible situation. And so uh, it became to the point where uh, the most tortured farm animal on earth was the laying hen. Uh, we found, or I found myself from having a farm early in the 80s that when birds are treated properly and they given the access to the outdoors and able to exhibit natural behavior and able to eat something in their diet besides corn, that several things happen. One, one thing is that you realize these are sentient beings that felt pain and, and, and uh, had personalities. Yeah. But more importantly, or, or as importantly in one sense, is that their eggs tasted better because when they got... Uh, a salad in, in their diet, um, the yolks change color, turn more of an orange color from the carotenes, and uh, they tasted better. And so having done that on a small scale on a farm, I wondered if it was possible to scale that up. And uh, so there were some people doing it on a localized basis, what they call pasture raising, where the birds were outside during the day, rotated under fresh pasture every uh, few days so that they, they had a ready diet besides just the corn you get in grain. And so how many farms are you working with at this point? Uh, we started with one, my wife and I, Catherine, uh, started with one farm back in uh, 2008, 2007, 2008. Now we have 140 family farms across uh, about eight states that produce eggs for us under strict guidelines. So, And again, the guidelines are part of it, but, but the difference really from one set of eggs to what you're doing with pasture raising it is the texture of the shell itself, but also... Uh, is there any element of change uh, of the taste of the egg because it's being raised in, in a somewhat different manner? Yes. I mean, it's not so much the shell, but it is what's inside. Okay. All the eggs kind of look the same, right, from the, right. From the outside of the shell. But once you crack it open, what you find is that an egg is made up of what the chicken's eaten in the last few days. And so if, if most, about 95 98% of all eggs in the United States come from chickens that are fed a diet of exclusively corn and a little bit of soybean meal. And when you give them a salad, the, that the makeup of the egg changes dramatically, and it tastes different. It tastes better. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's a big, big, different, big differentiator in our case. So how did you originally get into the egg business? Um, well, I, I started out with uh, wanting, having a conversation with some friends of mine that, that uh, indicated that they thought that, the, that pasture raising was going to become a thing for chickens. And I had a background in previous companies as an entrepreneur. One of my companies had for 12 years been in the franchising business. And I thought, I wonder if there's a way to get farmers a supply chain franchise as opposed to the sales end. You know, McDonald's, it's the stores that are the franchisees, right? right, so, right. But what about the supply chain being the, the, the franchise? And so it was a different concept. And we designed a, a program. My wife and I started out with one farm. We proved out the concept that you could actually produce these eggs uh, from, uh, from on a, a set of standards that would do it properly. Uh, from treating the hens a certain way. And then we uh, got other farmers to, to sign on. It was very difficult to get the next farmer at first, and, uh, and, then, but, and also difficult to try to get customers to pay three or four or five times for eggs that they were paying for their 98-cent dozen battery caged eggs. But I guess that, to a degree, has changed because of the advent of other stores like Whole Foods and other natural food stores that have kind of changed the mindset of a lot of people into what they want to put into their bodies, but where they're willing to go to get those products and how much they're willing to spend as well. That's right. I mean, you know, people really have started paying attention. It wasn't an instant process in the last few years. It started, you know, decades ago when the natural food movement, the the Organic Act came out in the early 90s. um, And all through the last 25, 30 years, people have more and more started to care about what they put in their bodies and, and how the the animals are treated that produce these goods for us, and so uh, these foods for us. So, yeah, it's it's a big change. And we started out with Whole Foods. We're in ten thousand grocery stores today. Uh, natural is just part of our our you know board. Ten thousand grocery stores all over the United States. What are those partnerships like, and and how important are they for you with your company with the farmers themselves? 
it's probably the most important relationship of all. But we, we base our company on what we call the stakeholder model, which is we treat all of our five stakeholders roughly equally. And our, our suppliers, our, our farmers and the hens, so to speak, uh, our, our employees, which we call our crew members, um, our, our uh, customers, our shareholders, and then the environment and the communities are all kind of looked at as a holistic approach to running a business. And so these stakeholders, the farmers, we meet with them quarterly. We have a set of a whole set of personnel in the field with expertise in, in, in poultry management that visit these farms on a regular basis to give them support, not uh-huh. just to do to comply with our methods, but also help them make them more profitable. We have quarterly meetings for them. We get hundreds of them in a room uh, every quarter. Uh, we feed them, but we bring in expertise from universities, from PhDs, you know, on different expertise levels uh, on feed management, pasture management. Uh, 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 bird health, uh, and so we constantly keep them up in best practices, and we strive to e- improve those practices and make them better and better uh, over time. So for people that, that really don't know yet about pasture raising, how different is that from the traditional, what I think a lot of people would consider to be the traditional process, or even free range as well? Well, we call it pasture raising, but in fact, we, do, we go beyond that. These birds, the chickens are really Southeast Asian jungle fowl. So they're not cows. They don't have four stomachs. They have one stomach, and uh, or they actually have a gizzard. And, <laughs> yeah. and so pasture is part of their diet, but also they have a wide-ranging diet um, because they're birds. They're omnivores. If you look at uh, what a bird eats in nature, they eat seeds. They eat, um, they'll eat leaves, and they'll eat some. Uh, uh, they eat worms, and they eat bugs. And so it's a wide-ranging diet that they get on the pasture. And uh, so we try to provide trees on all of our farms now. So hmm. when we select a farm, we have 300 over 300 farms now on deck that would love to become farmers for us today. And we, we make sure these farms have trees. They're using what, we, what a normal farmer would look at as marginal farmland. Uh, but for us, it's perfect, you know, a combination of trees and, and different structure, and the, not just plowed fields. And the birds spend their days outdoors, um, and they moved on to fresh pasture every so often as the old pasture is depleted right. from, because they eat it up and tear it up. Birds are really <laughs> <laughs> famous for digging around and liking to have dust baths, move them onto fresh pasture. And they don't get to come back to the old pasture they were on for 60 days, and that lets the old pasture uh, recover. But when it does recover, it's got great fertilizer on it, and it comes <laughs> back with, you know, I've, I've seen farms that have started out with this light green grass, and over the course of a couple of years, all the grass on the farms and the old pastures are now blue, and almost that dark, dark, dark green, so... It's really a healthy, healthy for the environment, healthy for the birds. Matt O'Hare is the uh, CEO and co-founder of uh, Vital Farms. You're listening to Knowledge of Wharton here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School as we're in New York City at the, uh, at the Forbes Small Giants event. So, I mean, when you're talking about that type of a process of, of moving uh, birds from one set of, of land to the other every, I guess, week, week and a half, whatever that, that time frame is, you're talking about farms that obviously have a, a, a significant amount of land to begin with. Well, we require all of our farms to have uh, 108 square feet outdoors per bird available pasture over the course of the year. Okay. So uh, we move them onto fresh pasture, but we already have outlined you know, the way it works. And basically what you have is you have a barn in the middle of a huge pasture area, and you have a perimeter fence around the outside, and then you have spoke and wheel sort of fencing on the inside. So that the birds are used a portion of that pasture at a time, yeah. and they go out there every day, and then, then they'll close off that section, open up another section for them. And so it c- kind of w- goes around the clock. We have two sections, one on each side of the barn, so they have easy access uh, at any one time. So it's, a, it's almost like a grid that you have working there, Exactly right? right. And every farm has that, every, and, and we make sure that's available up front. It's, it's not just um, that it's available. We want the outcome. We want the birds out on the pasture. We want them using the pasture and eating the, the, the what's out there, all the goodies that are available to them. So how do you think that, that this style uh, of, of raising hens is changing the industry a little bit right now? Well, we started off with um, 0.0001% of the egg business. Yeah. <laughs> Today we're over 2% of the shell egg business in the United States, and that's growing. we've been the fastest-growing egg company in America for years. So it is making a, a massive and a rap, rapid change. You know, we don't expect to capture all of the egg business because it's always going to be more expensive when you don't torture the farm animal. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but we, are, we have, the growth has been tremendous for us, and that's because of, I think, not just the animal welfare component, but also the health component. Uh, these are, eggs are more nutritious when, the, when you have a varied diet. 
and also for the taste component. How much has it, has it changed just the understanding by the consumer in general uh, of this style of raising hens when you have, obviously, the partnerships with companies like Whole Foods and others? Well, you know, the good partners like Whole Foods do, uh, and all of our partners really do take an active role in educating the customer into what the difference is. And I think that's a big important because big importance of what we're doing. You know, we did a study, a recent study, we went up to 700 consumers and asked them a question. When you hear the term cage-free, what style of agriculture do you, do you expect? And they define in detail what we do, pasture raising. Right. When in fact cage-free is simply the exact same environment as the cages, except for the cages are open and they're jammed in with 100 square inches, 112 square inches per bird inside um, with nowhere to move, hardly any room to move around um, in, in an environment that you'll never get invited to see. And uh, we are happy to have people come out and see our farms because it's totally, it's day and night. But people think when they hear cage-free that they're getting the, the, what we do. And so education is a really important part of our, our job. So then when the birds will come in to, uh, to, uh, to give their eggs, they're in what size uh, of a container when they're, when they're doing that process? Well, all of our barns are kind of state-of-the-art on the inside. So at nighttime, we have, there's heat and there's feed, and there's water, and it's a great environment and, and, and um, uh, place for them to jump up and roost. Uh, so that's at night, and they usually lay first thing in the morning. Right. So they have ne- nesting boxes down the center of, of, the, of the house. The birds know where they are. There's curtains. The girls like their, pri- <laughs> the girls like their privacy. Even the hens, the girls like they their like. privacy. <laughs> and when they lay, they lay the egg, it rolls onto actually a belt underneath that they don't see, and that takes the egg away. Uh, when the farmer comes you know, once or uh, several times a day and flicks a switch and the eggs come rolling out and they pack them into, into trays for them and go into a cooler. And we come and pick them up. And so, I mean, you've obviously, as you said, 140 farms at this point. The mindset I would think amongst the farmers is seemingly changing in terms of how important this could be as a way to improve the operations of a company. And as you said before, make sure that the birds are taken care of well as, as also. Yes, it is. The farmers... Um, you know, farmers love to, to farm. That's what they do. And, they, and it, it feels a lot better for the family farm that gets to treat a hen with respect and, and, and really sees them, you know, enjoying themselves in the pasture right. versus can you imagine what it must be like to, to be a, a farmer where, where they're going in and having to pull dead bodies out of cages and, and just some of those conditions are horrific. How Now, obviously, having, as I said, having Whole Foods is one way, but I, I read something that I guess within the, the packaging of the eggs, you also, in terms of reaching the consumer, are doing a version of a newsletter as well, sending information out with them with the eggs that they will, that they will purchase as well? Yeah, 10 years we've been doing Vital, uh, vital Times. It's uh, we've got one of the largest circulations of any newspaper in the country. We'll do, <laughs> we'll do 40 million issues this year. Wow. You can subscribe. I'll give you a good rate. Okay. All right. Well, yeah. And, and I have to start buying, buying the eggs when I go to Whole Foods the next time. Yeah, this great cartoon in there is a whole cartoon series. That we like it to be a little edgy and funny, and we have a, a bird of the month every month. What was the idea behind doing that type of a piece to reach the consumer? It, again, you know, a lot of when you're breaking through a new category and, and uh, taking what is once a commodity and, and, you know, trying to break it into a a quality branded product, you have to tell the story and you have to tell what's going on. And, and so that education is a huge part of what we do. And that methodology has enabled us to really tell the story. Every issue has two articles in it, but we always try to hit on, you know, the three major points, which is uh, animal welfare. Oh, actually four, the, the family farm, the story about our family farmers, uh, the, uh, the taste and nutrition of the eggs. What's the importance for you of, of being in a, uh, here at an event like this and being recognized for the work that, that you've been doing? Well, it's really the work of, of um, a lot of hens. <laughs> True. Yes, that is correct. Uh, I have not laid a jumbo egg, but I can't imagine it's a very <laughs> fun thing to do. Uh, our family farmers who work you know, seven days a week, because our birds lay seven days a week, uh, and really importantly is our crew members of Vital Farms who are spread around the country, and they work tirelessly. And I, I come to these events. I told, sent an email to my leadership team this morning because I was going to be here. And so once again, 
I'm going to accept the glory for all of your hard work. <laughs> and it's, it does not seem fair to me that uh, it really is about the, really the hard work of the crew at Vital Farms. Split up the plaque or the trophy in, into 140 fa- pieces that you can send to every, exactly. every farm. That's exactly right. Nice meeting you, Matt. Thanks Same very much you. for coming in. Thanks, Dan. Matt O'Hare, who is the uh, CEO and co-founder of Vital Farms, joining us here at the uh, Forbes Small Giants Expo. Well, our next guest is trying to make a change in how we think about and consume food. They quote information from Bloomberg that America wastes about $160 billion in food every year and 40% of food products. And with many people in countries around the world going malnourished, they see those numbers as unacceptable. Enter David Rodriguez, who's the CEO and co-founder of Food for All, which is a marketplace for restaurants to be able to sell their leftovers at the end of the business day to customers, for some cases, upwards of 80% cheaper than the original price. Great to meet you. Thank you for coming over today. Thank you so much. Nice. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you. So, I mean, this is an incredibly interesting idea. How did the idea to do something like this first come about? So we're three co-founders. Uh, the three of us had a, a experience before in the restaurant industry in different positions like, um, I mean, servers, cookers, uh, managers. And we came to the U.S. to start our master's degree. So we met here during um, grad school. And we were in a very tight budget, um, full scholarships, and living in an expensive city like Boston. Yeah. So we were always trying to look for good deals on, on restaurants. And we <laughs> started to see a pattern, specifically in coffee shops. Like at the end of the day, there were a lot of coffee shops that discounted their food. And we said, okay, uh, why can't every single restaurant do the same? And that's how Food for All started. And so now, how do you take that idea and play it out? Because there's a lot of pieces that would be involved here. One, partly because you're doing it as an app, but also the relationship with the restaurants and and obviously trying to connect with the consumer as well. So there are three reasons why the restaurants joined us. Um, The restaurants are key for Food for All to be able to work. So every time we arrive to a new new, city or area, we try to get as many restaurants as we can, like very high density. Two reasons why they joined. The first one is like to to get extra revenue, so, so transform uh, into monetary revenue what will other, otherwise be wasted. The second one is food traffic, getting to know people, getting making people to get to know um, the restaurant, their offers. Uh, maybe they come and grab a, uh, I don't know, like a muffin, and they can upsell a, a coffee shop. And the third one is giving back to the community. So food for is also community building, um, trying to help local businesses. And also the the people that are living close to them, close to them. So you have about, from what you told me before, about two hundred or so restaurants in Boston and in New York as well that are part of this at this point. Correct. Last week we reached uh, our two hundred mark, so we're we're excited. How much uh, of this and what you're doing is is geared on the the dinner community with restaurants, or are there other elements with breakfast and lunch as well? So that is a good question. Like, um, we have a lot of variety in food for all. Uh, we have a lot of restaurants that change menu from mornings to afternoon. Yeah. So um, I'll say that we have some restaurants that start about 12, 1, 2 p.m. A lot of the coffee shops close at 4 or 5. Uh, but you're right. Like, most of the offers that we have, about 70% are between 7 to 10 p.m. at night. Uh, so then the expectation is that for a lot of the restaurants that – they see this as an opportunity to be able to move some of the, the food product that they know that they were going to waste at the end of the day, and it tries to lower that waste number, correct? Correct. We are right now solely mail and focusing on restaurants that have food that is already prepared. So talking about coffee shops, grab-and-goes, buffets, like all-you-can-eat restaurants as well. Um, and the pickup time is always within the, the, the business working hours. So once the restaurant closed, Food for All doesn't operate anymore. Is, is the timing, does the timing work out well for some people? Because when you think about that time frame, the end of business day, some people will have no problem eating late at night. Other people don't. They you know, want to eat in that 5 to 7 p.m. range. Correct. So the discount is incentive. Is that, that, that is incentive for people to actually go, um, I mean, in that specific time frame. So it is a deep discount. So one of our policies is that it, is, it needs to be between 50 to 80% cheaper. How important do you think it is to, to address this type of an issue? And maybe it's not specifically dealing with people that are struggling with, 
with eating and, and the waste of food. But it is an issue that's been talked about a lot. And I think it's an important point that f- for the restaurants, they feel like they're not wasting as much food as maybe they would. That is a, an excellent question. So a lot of what Food for All is doing is education, both for restaurants and also for users. Um, you're totally right. Like um, when, we, when we started Food for All, the biggest challenges was for restaurants to actually realize that they had um, overproduction of food, uh, food waste. Um, they really considered it before as part of the daily operations, so something that it was part of the business. Um, so that was the first stage, like really convincing them, that make them realize that they could transform it into something benefit for the community and also for themselves, like getting extra revenue. And for the users, actually, to break out the stigma about food waste, uh, really make them realize that this this was really um, totally well and and perfectly good food. Um, and also part of the equation uh, of how to manage better the food in their in their households, because uh, also that's one of the biggest parts where food waste is produced. So we also try to create a lot of content for people to actually realize how they can better manage their food at home. How do the restaurants, I, I guess, gauge how much or what they're going to have available at the end of the day? Because in the course of their business operations in a day, one food item may sell a lot better than another. So I guess there has to be some flexibility with what's available towards the end of the day. Yes. Um, the, the restaurant industry is a very hard industry. So the um, predicting the demand is very, very complicated. Um, the more established the, the restaurant, the easier it is for them. Um, whenever the restaurant is starting is, is when they have the most, the most waste because they are still figuring out like, which is going to be the, the target persona that are going to arrive there to the restaurant, like the best hours to work. So a lot of the restaurants that we also work with, one of the, policy, uh, the policies is to always have food available. Right. So it's kind of like a psychological effect. If a customer arrives and they don't see like all the shelves full of food, they perceive it as low quality and the customer just walk away. So that's why no matter what they do, they will always have like some sort of surplus food. David Rodriguez is the CEO and uh, co-founder of Food for All. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. What do you think are the greatest benefits for the consumer, for the people that are going to download the app and potentially use this service? So the first one is the, the monetary benefit. You're saving um, uh, at least 50% on, on food. It can go all the way to like 80%. The second one is really actually making something uh, that, you can, that you can see the, uh, with your own eyes. Like it's food that will otherwise be wasted. So it's also helping the environment. And the third is really actually helping local businesses. So uh, allowing them to transform what will otherwise be wasted into more revenue for them. How then are you marketing this to the public at this point, because you said you have 200 restaurants, and I'm sure they're part of that is what the restaurant will help you do to market this idea. So we're starting to uh, in in college campuses to begin. Um, we are, I mean, every time we go to a new city, we try to go to the to the university campuses, right? Um, get restaurants that are close to the campuses, and then market to the students. Um, we're also trying to go to uh, people with non-standard working hours. That we, that's how we like to, to call them. So people that work in retail, in the restaurant industry. We recently discovered that Uber and Lyft drivers love it because uh, they are uh, all over the city and they can easily stop. Uh, bikers as well. So it's really for everyone. We're trying to, but we also try to be very focused on who we're targeting at the beginning. But you're right about that. That, that I don't know any college student that wouldn't like to have a great meal at 50% or 80% off what the what the normal cost would be. Correct. And they are also very active in social media. So it's also free marketing for us. Like they allow us to reach a bigger audience. Um, so that's why we're also targeting at the beginning. Was doing it as an app really the, the, the most logical way to go about doing uh, a, a company like this? To begin with, yes, because of the... Um, um, how easy it was for people to actually be walking around the city and see which were the restaurants that are, were closing to them. So um, one of our plans is to also make it web-based, um, but this, it, it will only be till next year. So then you also have to, I would imagine, when you're going into a new town, look at the different types of restaurants that are there. And tr- I, I would think really focus on trying to have a variety of restaurants that you partner with to give options to uh, to the people that are going to be potentially buying the food. 
Correct. So what people really want is numbers, so a lot of resonance, but also a lot of variety. Um, also something that we discover is that we really need to focus on restaurants that have two, two specific characteristics. The first one is uh, good quality of food. But the second and actually most important, it was actually good service. So if it was a restaurant with good food, good service, and I mean, um, and close to them, uh, it's, a, it's a good sell for, for the user. What do you think have been the biggest challenges, though, in doing something like this? At the beginning, it was really opening a new market. So no one had heard about something like this before. So the restaurants were skeptical. The users were skeptical. Um, they were like, oh, this sounds, I mean, too good to be true. Like, it, there has to be a catch. <laughs> right. um, so the beginning was really creating the, the, the initial network. Um, I'll say that all up till 50 restaurants were the most challenging one. The, the, the bigger the network the easier is becoming now. We're able to refer, like, hey, okay, your neighbor is doing it, uh, X and Y restaurant is also doing it. So yeah. there is more credibility behind what we're doing. So there was an element of word of mouth, not only with the consumers, the people that were buying the food, but from the restaurants as well. That, this is, that this is a way for the restaurant to be able to remove some of that potential excess waste and be able to save a little bit on the lost cost. Exactly. The more we're gro growing, the more we're seeing restaurants referring to, I mean, their peers or their neighbors. So, yeah, it's getting a little bit more easier. So what about expansion? I, I mean, you're in Boston and New York now, and with those 200 restaurants, not only, I would imagine, are you trying to expand within those communities, but you're trying to expand to other cities as well. Correct. So right now we're trying to grow as much as we can in, those, in, in both cities. And by, the, um, by next summer, we expect to be in three more cities as well. Do you have an idea of, of what that, that kind of key moment is to say, yes, we are at this point, we are ready to expand to other cities? So the moment that we started to reach saturation, uh, talking about restaurants and also the users are starting to buy as, as much of the meals that we're offering. So once we're to, re to reach saturation, uh, we tend to, to move to another city. So for example, in Boston, we're almost reaching to that point where we have market to pretty much uh, our initial number of restaurants that we had in mind. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. What is it about the, the, the Boston and New York markets that, well, Boston won because you were going to college there, but, uh, you know, what about those two specific markets has really driven, you think, the success of Food for All at this point? Great question. So Boston, um, about the number of college students, um, it was very helpful to begin with. Like in, it allows to have very low customer acquisition costs of very low marketing expenses. Mm -hmm. So really the students were the ones like make, were making the, the, the word of mouth. Um, and in New York, the dense, it is a density. So it is seven times more restaurants, um, higher density of people and higher density of restaurants close to those users. But the, the, the challenge I would think in New York is, I mean, obviously you benefit from the density, but also the, the wide amount of different types of restaurants and because of the ethnicity of New York City, the, the types of food that people want. Yeah. Um, so here uh, it is more... It is more it is more common for people to go out for people to experiment different type of cuisines. So yeah, you're right. Um, the variety of restaurants here is way way higher than in Boston. Uh, we are uh, here at the uh, the Forbes Small Giants uh, conference. We're joined by David Rodriguez, who is the CEO and co-founder of Food for All. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. So take us through the process when somebody obviously downloads the app. How do they go about doing this from placing the order all the way to the pickup of the food? So it is a very easy and straightforward uh, process. The users download the app. They choose their favorite, favorite meals from the restaurants that are close to them. Um, they pay directly to the app as we handle all the transactions, and we make a monthly payment to the restaurant. And then they will get a receipt, and they just head to the restaurant at a specific time that the rest, each restaurant has. So, for example, for some restaurant is from 8 to 10, from some restaurant is from 6 to 5, uh, so from 5 to 6, sorry. Um, so, yeah, it depends on the restaurant, and then you go and pick up directly from, from the restaurant. And you pick the food up. Correct. Right now it's only pick up. We're trying to figure out ways to we can add delivery, but right now it's uh, pick up only. I, what's been the reaction of some of the people? And I can imagine what the reactions are from the college kids in Boston to being able to have this. And probably to a degree, even from their parents, because their kids are saving money on the food that they're buying as well. At the beginning, it's a surprise that they're saving money. But the biggest surprise that they have is that this is, I mean, 
it, this is the, exactly the same quality of food that they will get uh, if they get, I mean, if they were in the, in the normal hours. So that is the biggest surprise for them, that the quality of the food doesn't change, the service doesn't change, and really the, the customer experience is the same. You mentioned being able to expand to, to other cities. What are the other elements of expansion that you need to think about where this whole operation is concerned? To begin with, um, density of restaurants. So we're trying to start with cities that have a high density of restaurants, but also high density of students. Because um, in our experience, that, that is what really drops our cost of marketing and expansion. You should get involved with the radio industry because we eat on off hours <laughs> all the time with some of the, some of the shifts we do. David, nice meeting you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. Nice Thank to meet you. you. David Rodriguez, who is the CEO and co-founder of Food for All. Well, in the world of sports, many of you listening today have seen the rise of synthetic fields again. Gone are the days of the old school AstroTurf. New synthetic fields focus on the ability to play in all weather types, but also provide a field that has a level of sustainability to it. The companies that are doing these fields are multi-million dollar organizations, but, but what makes our next guest unique is that they also do incredible grass fields as well, including the field at the Atlanta Braves' new stadium, which is also being focused on sustainability and become a company recognized by the University of Cincinnati as its best place to work in the Cincinnati area for companies with 76-plus employees. Joe Motes is the CEO of the Motes Corporation. Zach Burns is president of the Motes Group. And Valerie Webster, president of U.S. Green Tech, joining us here at the Forbes Small Giant Conference. Thank you all for coming on today. Thank, Thank you, Dan. Greatly Thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. Joe, t- tell us first how you got started in this in the first place. <laughs> yeah, I ask myself sometimes how they <laughs> get from there to here. So I, I'm a farm boy. And... Uh, you know, you start off with a dream, and you start off with trying to grow better grass than, uh, than what's being grown locally and, and keep building on that model and working with um, – you. it comes with luck as well, and then it's what you make of the luck. So in Cincinnati, Ohio, um, we've got one of our professional football teams there, the Bengals, who uh, um, gave me opportunity to start off with them in the early days and – and through exposure there at that level, and as well as um, high school fields doing their turf care, started developing a relationship with the sports community. It is amazing how much, though, it is put into a lot of these fields right now, uh, whether it be the grass or the synthetic at this point. And the, the invest, especially on the synthetic side, because schools, whether it be high schools, colleges, whatever, they see the investment, but they see the potential savings down the line, correct? That's right. That's right. It's all now how how much you're utilizing your your uh, footprint and and the problem with high schools is they're they're typically it land is an issue and they need equal access for their facilities. So the synthetic provides the ability for the athletic director to allow everybody to have access to the basically an outdoor classroom or sporting opportunity for them. Valerie, I, I guess the, the, the amazing thing for a lot of people it are some of the issues around sustainability and how these fields are, are put together and the ability of them not only be able to last for a long period of time, but be able to have an element of it that is supportive of, of the environment as well. Absolutely. I think it'd be, it's more and more of a concern. You know, as people are more aware, there's higher education as it relates to what is the product, right? So what they're actually putting in, what they're on a high school level, what they're exposing their children to, and then all the way up through collegiate and the professional high-profile field. So there's a lot of interest around how businesses are doing um, and approaching their day-to-day operations and how that contributes to sustainability. Zach, I think it's amazing just the fact that a lot of these schools, especially high schools, are making these investments. Because if you think back in my day, you saw grass everywhere, and on a football field, you'd have that patch, you know, in the center of the field that was burned out. It was just, it was just basically dirt. You don't have that anymore, and the schools realize that they're willing to, to make that investment. It's an investment by the school, but also by the school district as well. It sure is, and, and I can relate to that growing up. There was nothing that we played on that mimics what the, uh, the kids have now. It's, it's incredible. It's more the anomaly now that they're playing on grass versus playing on synthetic turf, and what Joe spoke to a moment ago is true. It's the, uh, the cost per use. They can use this thing as much as they want 24 seven and don't have to worry about the resources to keep up natural grass or the water, or the, 
um, fertilizers or the paint or anything like that that used to kind of limit um, that sacred space. Now they can use it 30 times in a week instead of 30 times in a year. So what is the lifespan now on a, on a typical synthetic field these days? How often do schools, universities, whatever it might be, have to think about the, the lifespan and down the road a replacement of that product? A good rule of thumb is um, the eight years, and that's typically what the warranty period will run. Um, and that depends on how much they're using it, how well they take care of it, um, where it's located, you know, with uh, weather and, and such. So anywhere from 8 to 12 years is usually that's what people would expect to get. What's the, what's the expectation then that you have in this industry right now? Because we have seen just this incredible growth of, of, of schools wanting to put these fields in, but there are probably many more that haven't made that, uh, that, that move yet and are probably thinking about it right now. Yeah, it's, it's a really fun space to be in and a service to provide because people get excited about it. And it's one of the few things you sell where somebody's like, well, I don't want my old product back. They're like, actually, I want another field. So we see, even with those that have made the investment of putting a field in, they're usually looking for other areas within their school district or campuses to put um, another field in, be it a baseball, maybe a multi-purpose band type use. Um, so it's um, <clears throat> it continues to grow, even with the ones that, that have existing fields. The amazing thing to me, Valerie, is the fact that not only do you have all these schools that are doing this, but there are so many more sports complexes that are out there uh, that, you know, that are, are looking to entertain travel teams and tournaments throughout the course of the year, whether it be in Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, all, all across the United States right now. So it's not just even the schools that where you're seeing this growth. You're right, Dan. I mean, there's... A- awful lot of sports complexes. So you want to think about it from an entertainment perspective, right? So there's, whether it's multi-baseball fields, soccer fields, lacrosse, it's, it's well beyond just utilization in the high school or in the elementary or any of those, the school arena. Joe, could you imagine, I mean, even when you were getting in on the, on the grass side, what this part of this industry has, has become really in about the last decade or so? Yeah, no, honestly, I didn't that it would get to that level. But the uh, the emphasis we place on sport here in the U.S. just continues to grow, both through good times and bad. I think it's a it's an active release for our young youth, and it gives them an opportunity to get out and play as a team together and work together. And that is something we continue to seek as we deal with more and more issues relative to confinement and being on our, our phones too much. So it's a, an area that continues to have a lot of growth opportunity. How much, how much, Valerie, from a technical perspective, is there innovation and in looking to even continue to improve these, these types of fields now in this day and age? Because it seems like we've, we've reached a level where we've, the, a lot of these fields are going in. They're obviously high-quality products, but how much more development can there be in this area? I think there's a huge opportunity for continued research, technology advancements with regard to the fabrication of it, you know, from the components, how the field is actually installed from an an applications um, perspective. Um, I I just think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity. It's a younger industry, so really we've only been around about 25 years or so. So when you think about that and how it can evolve, there's a huge opportunity What's the expectation then that you're going to see moving forward with with grass, Zach? I I, I mean, you still have, when you think about a lot of colleges and and pro sports, you still have that want to have grass. A lot of different sports, soccer to a degree, is still Mm -hmm. trying to, uh, to use that. The grass side of it, obviously, there's more of investment, as you said, that you have to have. But there are a lot of elements that want to have that grass. They 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 would make that choice of grass over they were over they would have uh, of synthetic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dan. I mean, as Valerie mentioned, there's room for innovation on the product side and the experience the athlete has, and that's how the ball moves across the synthetic grass, uh, the heat they feel, you know, is it a cooler or or hotter situation that they're playing on? But, um, you know, like you mentioned in the beginning, you're talking to a company that builds natural grass as well. And we do that on the highest level of sport. And we understand that if an athlete had his choice, they would play on a perfectly manicured natural grass field. But the reality is not everybody has the resources to make that come true. And that's where the synthetic... Um, answer is really filled in in the marketplace is that 
it can provide a really good surface for a really long time versus um, with grass. You just don't know what you're going to get. And, and I guess the other thing, Valerie, is that I, I think a lot of people assume that with synthetic, they to a degree believed it was a geographical need to be able to have synthetic. People that were had schools up in the north, it was easier to be able to put in a synthetic product than have a grass field because of the change of, of conditions. That's not even the case anymore, as you see a lot of schools in the south wanting to do that as well. Absolutely. And it's across geographical boundaries, right? So what's it could be in the Midwest, very prominent. Again, we're sports, and that's nationwide, where that's an interest and where there's a desire to do that on a higher and higher basis and frequency, then there's an absolute need for our product. Joe, where do you think the growth is for this industry moving forward in the next, next 10 to 15 years? More and more specialization, both on the, um, the hybrid products, bringing these two elements together and taking your natural and your synthetic and bringing it together and create a hybrid system wow. as an area of real opportunity. Um, the whole area of, of um, how we dispose of these fields and how we can make that more of a whole life management program is a great opportunity. Valerie? I think there, I think growing our people as well, too. So when we speak about our particular industry, um, you know, Joe has really, and Zach and I have committed to making sure that there's opportunity for people. And I think that where there's opportunity for people, then there's growth. Zach, your thoughts? Yeah, as long as kids keep wanting to play sports and, and parents will shuttle them all over the <laughs> the, uh, the universe to do so, there's going to be a, a pain point that we need to provide an answer for. And you mentioned it earlier with the multi-field type installations. We're seeing more of um, more confined, even in a city like New York, where there's a there might be a an abandoned basketball court where you can put turf on there. And those small playground areas that you can put on, you know, any elementary school um, that that beats playing in a, a muddy grass area on recess. So there's continues to be growth opportunity. I'm one of those parents, by the way, with three <laughs> kids that are all playing all playing club soccer right now. But it, Valerie, take us for a second uh, about the product. Obviously, when you're talking about a synthetic field, a lot of people talk about the fact that it's crushed rubber that's involved with that product. About the environmental safety of of, of that product, how. I mean, that's obviously has to be one of the great concerns that companies like yours have when they're putting in these products. You know, it's interesting. So while there's been some studies out there and nothing shows profoundly that that crumb rubber is not necessarily some uh, hazardous, what what it is is if you sit there and if you took everything else aside, would ask yourself, do you want your children playing on crushed up tires? And so while some continue to put that in, we absolutely are committed to looking at better solutions and what that can be is something that's a mineral base, something that's a natural base, something that's a little bit different that is absolutely committed to sustainability and safety and just thinking about the world and the future of our world. I guess that's, that's the key ingredient there when you're talking about at least sustainability is that you're going to have something that, that gives back to the environment as well, correct? Yes, absolutely. Great having you all here. Thank you very much. Nice meeting you all. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. All the best. Thanks. Right. Joe Motes, uh, who is the uh, CEO of the Motes uh, Corporation, Zach Burns, who's president of the Motes Group, and Valerie Webster, who is president of U.S. Green Tech. We will take a break. Come back with more of our show coming up in just a minute. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton from the Forbes Small Giants Conference in New York City. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.